episode 17 of The Build. Glad you're tuning back in. Happy belated Father's Day to all the dads listening. Um, and to all the dads that got traded. Um, that was just Shea Weber. I'm, I, here's a peek behind the curtain. I can't sit when I record this podcast in the, in the, in the attic now because it's too hot and I sweat like crazy. So I can't do that. So right now I'm actually standing in my attic, just talking into a microphone. If you hear the floor squeak, maybe you can hear that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, and I'm looking out the window and I see a woodchuck. So that's pretty cool. This show isn't about woodchucks. Okay. Um, so, you know, bit, pretty big week for the Canadians, even though nothing is generally happening uh, to make the team better in the long term, long, long term, long run. But um, Ken Hughes is still hard at work putting his stamp on the Canadians by tearing things down. We'll get to the big trade in a moment. But first, um, you know, just a quick peek at the Stanley Cup final. I've been watching. Um, I watched most. I watched all of Game One, most of Game Two. I turned it off at four nothing because I was falling asleep. Um, I I think that this is the final that everybody has wanted for a very long time, and we finally got it. And Game One was everything you could have asked for, right? Like it was just the Av- the Avs got a big lead. The Bolts came back. We got overtime. The Avs scored quickly into overtime, of course, but. That was a really, really great game. And game two was an absolute disaster for the Tampa Bay Lightning. It was the first time, I think, in in you know the last three years of their dominance where we can honestly say they they looked really human. And they looked bad. Like it was generally just a bad effort from them. Um and game one was funny because I think, you know, the Lightning haven't faced a ton of adversity over the last three years of their their run. Um the the biggest one I can think of was you know, Stamkos not really playing much in the bubble. I think he played that one shift in the finals, scored a goal, and then didn't play again. Um, and, you know, they got there was one really bad penalty in game one where Kel McCarr got tripped, but he didn't actually get tripped. It seemed more like he just fell over. And uh, John Cooper just completely lost his mind on the bench. And it was just, it was kind of telling that, like, the first time that that team faces any kind of adversity... And the coach just completely loses it. Um, that's not really something that I think I expected to see. Um, but we did see it. Um, and this Colorado team is probably just like the best lightning, the best team the Lightning have played against in the playoffs over the last three years. This year's Leafs are probably in second place. Um, just because they they took them to the disc, they took them, you know, to all seven games and most of those games were very close. They're, the Leafs are the only team in this this Lightning run that have outscored the Lightning in the series. Um, Tampa just still managed to win it. Um, and Colorado, I think, is just healthier at the moment. Tampa's really banged up. I think Colorado's going to get Nazem Kadri back at some point in this series. Um, I don't think it'll be in Game 3, which is playing tonight as I record this. But um, I just think... This is Colorado's series to lose at this point, um, which you can't count Tampa out at any point. Um, but I just think it's it's Colorado's steamrolling everybody they've faced so far. Um, and that said, this could easily be the, the cup final for the next few years. I don't know what anybody else has to say about that. And I don't know what the, um, you know, what the, the cap, the salary cap, you know, a crunch is going to do to a team like Tampa, which it never seems to bother anyway, or a team like Colorado, who I don't think there's a bad contract on that team. 
So, like, if they were both back here again next season, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, in other league final news, the Laval Rocket didn't make their league final. Uh, a shutout loss to Springfield in Game 7 ended Laval's season. It was a pretty disappointing way for them to finish out. For about half that game, they looked really bad. They just looked like they weren't ready to play. Um, Primo did his best to keep them in that game, as he did throughout the entire playoff. Um, Springfield's up one nothing in the Calder Cup final right now. I gotta say, like, and I don't watch a ton of AHL hockey, so I don't know like what the general thought or the the, the general vibe on Springfield is. They 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 acted like a very immature group through that that playoff series. Like every time a Springfield player went to the box in Laval, they took their towel and they threw it on the camera in the penalty box so that they they couldn't see them on the jumbotron. Like it was a very immature group from what I could see. That was a very poorly officiated series. Um, that's not why they lost the series, of course, but you know, it's just generally it's, it's a, it's a tough thing to look back at that series and wonder what could have been when the officiating was as bad as it was. Um, but I think Laval is going to be pretty decent next year and maybe moving forward after that. I think they'll have a really good blue line um, because there's just a backlog of defensemen, young defensemen in between Montreal and Laval. Um, you know, even with subtractions and additions to come for the Montreal Canadiens on the blue line, I, I think that they're going to have a lot of talent on that blue line um, to, you know, insulate, hopefully, Caden Primo. I've been pretty... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? I'm, I'm reluctant to bring Caden Primo up to the NHL just because of what we've seen. Maybe, you know, he takes the summer, he trains, he comes back in training camp, and he looks like the same Caden Primo that we saw in the playoffs. Then I'd be like, okay, we can we can entertain the idea of him being the backup behind Jake Allen. Um, but for now, I, I would really, really, really be hesitant to bring Caden Primo up. But he had a 936 save percentage in 14 games in the... Call the cut playoffs. He wasn't only making the routine saves, he was regularly making like ridiculous saves in dramatic fashion that kept his team in it. Um, so it's a good story, not only for the Canadians and for the Laval Rocket, but for Primo, who I think really needed some kind of win after the season that he just had in Montreal. Um, and, you know, I, I as I say, I'm hesitant to bring Primo up to the NHL at this point. I do recognize that the Canadians' goaltending situation is anything but clear. And if Primo comes to camp and is the best goalie at camp, he's probably going to earn an NHL spot, at least to start the season. So we'll have to take a look and see what that what that does for this team moving forward. I also liked um, Har Raphael Harvey-Pinard, LeValiger. I, I really like the way that he plays. I think it'll translate to an NHL game. Not, not a top-line guy. Maybe not even a second-line guy, but a third-line energy kind of player. I really, really, really think that that's um, what they have in in Raphael Harvey-Pinard. Maybe play second-wave power play. Um, I, I think they've got something there. They've got an NHL player there. Outside of, you know, determining his role moving forward, they have an NHL player, which is neat. We, we're not used to getting a ton of those out of Laval. All right, here's the big one. We have a trade to announce. Which I think in the future might be individual episodes um, of this show that don't aren't numbered. They're just trade discussion. Um, you know, I won't do them for every trade that happens at like the draft, but like after the draft, you know, and after free agency, maybe the trades just become their own show. Who knows? Um, on June sixteenth, the Canadians uh, made a deal with the Vegas Golden Knights to send Shea Weber out to the desert. 
in exchange for Evgeny Dadanov. Dadanov, I believe it is actually. Uh, the deal is one for one, which I find very amusing because that's how Weber got here. No salary retained either way. So here's what we're going to do. Talk about Dodonoff a little bit. Talk about the salary cap ramifications. And then put a bow on the Shea Weber era in Montreal. This will be the bulk of today's episode because it is the biggest news, I think. You know, it's the only news for the Canadians, realistically. But on top of that, it's 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 a seismic shift for this, this hockey team. All right, Dodonoff. The name is obviously familiar given the botched trade that took place at the deadline last year between Vegas and Anaheim. That, of course, being Vegas trying to deal uh, Dodonov to Anaheim for the cap relief. Uh, the trade didn't go through because Dodonov had no trade protection that the league... The, the, for some reason, the league doesn't like keep track of all of that. It's like up to the teams to remember who has what. And apparently, when Ottawa traded Dodonov to, um, to Vegas, that just didn't translate over um so the botch trade meant that he stayed um of course the anaheim ducks had a good tweet when they announced the weber for didonoff trade they wrote you sure which was very funny um and despite the circus that he was involved in in, in vegas didonoff had 20 goals 23 assists 43 points and down the stretch he was one of vegas's best players like after the trade deadline when they realized, okay, we're not going to be able to move him, which means he's going to he's gonna be on our salary cap, which means we need him to play because we've got nobody else healthy and we can't activate guys from the IR because we have too much money tied up. So he comes in and he's scoring goals that like helped keep them in the running to, for a playoff spot. It ultimately fell short, but I thought that was a, real, a really interesting thing for Dodonov that like this team doesn't want him. They tried to move him. And it didn't matter. He still, you know, was 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 out there playing hockey. Um, I think that's the kind of guy you want in a situation that Montreal is in, where like we're not really trying to make the playoffs, you know, but you have to put up a good showing. And I think, um, for me anyway, the biggest part of this deal is not some like from from an on ice perspective is that he's a left-handed shot forward. And the reason I I'm I say that is that I think. They, the Montreal Canadiens need someone who can play a, a, an offensive role with Suzuki and Caulfield. And I think that they would prefer it to be a left-handed shot because Suzuki and Caulfield are both right-handed shots. And they kind of like forced Rem Petlick into being that guy this year because he, he was a left-handed, he is a left-handed shot. And I don't like, God bless Rem Petlick, but like, he can't be on the top line of this team next season. Like, he just can't. You know, so he Dodonov's not a top-end option, right? Like, he's not a prototypical first-line player. On a team that's not geared to make the playoffs, he's a fine option for that, I think. Um, maybe play some power play time. Really, if you are able to then take him at the trade deadline, he's only got this upcoming year left on his deal, you can retain half of his salary and you can flip him at the trade deadline for something good for the future. Um, or, you know, he's 33. He's got, what, like, like I said, that one year left. Um, if it goes poorly, it just ends at the end of the season. There's not, there's no long-term relationship with him. So he can just go quietly into the night if that's what ends up happening. Um, 
So I think Montreal did well to not only get a player back in this deal, but get a player back with no long-term commitment. Um, you, Montreal's not in a position where they should be making long-term commitments to 33-year-old hockey players. So let's get into some of the salary cap ramifications of this deal. Um, first, and the reason I didn't talk about Weber as like a, an asset in this trade is because he's really just a... He's, he, his contract was traded. We know he's not playing again. And I think Vegas acquiring him shows you that he's not playing again because of the, the salary cap hell that the Vegas Golden Knights are in. But we'll get into that. Uh, here's from Cap Friendly. Uh, quote, after trading Weber's contract to Vegas in exchange for Evgeny Dadonov, Dadonov, sorry, the Habs now find themselves uh, a little over $1.9 below the ceiling with a roster of 20. 11 forwards, 60, two goalies, and one on IR. Depending on Price's status, his $10.5 million cap hit could also be placed on uh, LTIR. So that cap space is looking like it's going to increase as well with Jeff Petrie being dealt out because it seems like that's going to happen. More on that later. Um, plus, outside this season, the Canadians are not on the hook for anything else in this deal. So Shea Weber's deal carries on for the next four seasons. He, he's owed $3 million next season, and then only $1 million in each of the three seasons that, that follow. So it's not cash-heavy, but it's cap-heavy. That's, that's the big thing, is Vegas, they need that LTIR. They needed somebody who wasn't going to count against their cap in Shea Weber. Um, you know, it's not so much the actual dollars that matter. Um, so I think the Canadians are happy to, to move bodies out of LTIR because they're not going to be using it. They don't want to be using it. And I think they need to get more cap because, if, you know, they're going to pick first in the draft this year. The player that they pick, I'm hoping it's Shane Wright. It, it seems like it will be, but, you know, you can't consider that a guarantee at this point. That player is going to end up, you know, accruing bonuses uh, performance bonuses, that sort of thing. His schedule Bs, we talked about those last, uh, maybe not last week, but the week before. So, you know, they need to clear cap because a, a player that comes in on an entry-level deal, yeah, sure, his cap hits like $9 million, but with bonuses, it could end up around 4 So that, that's what Montreal's trying to safeguard against is, is that cap overage that we're already seeing they have for next season because players like Alex Romanoff hit their uh, schedule B bonuses. Um, also from cap friendly, this trade frees up $2.86 million in cap space for the Canadians and gives them a serviceable player. Given the acquisition, it is reasonable to expect that the Knights are planning to use LTIR as they are now projected to go above the upper limit by $2.7 million. So another thing we talked about on the show is, is when you use LTIR, do, you know, when do you have to be cap compliant? And, you know, everyone, I had said on this show a while ago, because I had, someone had reached out and said that, you know, you have to be cap compliant when a season starts. You have to be under or at the salary cap at the beginning of the regular season. And that's not necessarily true. Um, from Cap Friendly, to clear up a common misconception, a team does not need to be below the upper limit to start the season on LTIR. They can use the LTIR training camp equation on the day prior to season start and place players on LTIR while already above the limit. I don't know what that equation is. It, this isn't a math podcast. We don't need to be doing that. So just take that at, at face value. They don't need to be. There's a way that they can be on, over the cap and use LTIR at the beginning of the season. So that's sort of that trade wrapped up in a bow. 
We'll see if Dodonov plays in Montreal. I, I tend to believe that he will. Um, there seems to be this underlying, like, m- like whisper going through Habs Twitter that, like, every time we mention him, like, you know, if he plays this with Montreal this season, I, I never really considered that, that they would deal him again just because of how hard it was for Vegas to deal him in the first place. Um, unless Anaheim wants him. And, you know, he here's the thing with Dodonov. He either had Montreal on his, you know, he either had Montreal on his 10-team no-trade and he waived it, or Montreal wasn't one of the 10 teams on his no-trade. So either way, like, it might still be difficult to deal him. So we'll see as it goes. I still think he's going to end up playing in Montreal this year and then just be flipped at the deadline because that's what they ought to do with him. And here's the um, the hard part, I think, is, you know, we kind of knew at the beginning of the season that, that just concluded um, that Shea Weber's career was likely over, that we weren't going to see him in a Montreal Canadiens jersey again, that, you know, that, that sort of era was over. But it seems like now we've gotten, you know, the ultimate closure on it in that he's never, he's not even, you know, contractually related to the Canadians at this point. Um, my buddy Scott Matla of Locked on Canadians and uh, Habs Eyes on the Prize, he wrote a, he wrote a great piece um, in Habs Eyes on the Prize. On the end of the Weber era in Montreal, I highly recommend it. I've linked it in the description, so go check it out. Um, but, you know, I think he nailed the Shea Weber era in Montreal in one sentence, which is challenging to do and but I think he did it and I'll read it here and then you can go read the rest of it uh for his flaws Weber played his role well but the Canadians as a whole were constructed with a mindset based on a game that was rapidly being left behind I think I think that kind of encapsulates it's all it all right it's that you know Weber was brought in you know because of the kind of defense that that Mark Bergevin wanted to have around and he filled that need well the problem is, is that the need was was not something that modern NHL teams would have traded a very valuable asset to acquire. Um, you know, through I, I think that one thing that we don't have to worry about anymore, but we did for the last what is it seven years, six years, was that the Weber Subban trade as a whole, or Weber himself and the critique of him as a player, those things were always just a vehicle for the debate on Mark Bergevin. And it, it, it'll always be that. And some people will say that's not fair. It, it doesn't matter because Mark Bergevin took the most popular member of the Montreal Canadiens, the most popular, I would say, Montreal celebrity at that point, and traded him for the guy he wanted. And I think that's that's important to 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 point that out. Because, you know, when when Bergevin took over and, you know, the coach that he hired in Michel Therrien, it didn't seem like PK Subban was in their long-term plans. It seems like he they were always trying to change him instead of just letting him be the best version of himself. In Shea Weber, they were going to get the player that they wanted PK Subban to be the leader that they wanted P.K. Subban to be. And that's, let's not forget that that's why Shea Weber was acquired, right? They weren't acquiring Shea Weber because they, you know, they knew 
that he was leaps and bounds a better player than P.K. Subban. I think at the time of the trade, they were kind of even as far as like, you know, the standard metrics, goals, assists, time on ice, blocks, that sort of thing. But, you know, asking why Shea Weber was acquired is a different question than asking why P.K. Subban was traded. And I'm not litigating that again, so we're done with that. They got Shea Weber because Mark Bergman felt the leadership in that room was inadequate. So he was bringing him in to clean something up. He was bringing him in to instill a new culture in that, in that locker room. And I have to say, like, looking back on it, that seems rather silly. Um, because they had a captain. They had Max Pacioretty. The team voted on the captain, and that's who they got. They had two elder statesmen who had been there forever in Andre Markov and Thomas Plekanec. And they had one of the most respected goalies in the league only a year removed from his heart Vezina season in Carey Price. So when he was when we were being told that it was about leadership and they wanted someone to to come in and help lead this team, you kind of have to wonder why they would need a leader with that many like veteran players. And I mean, Carey Price is one of the most respected players on the planet. He's one of the most feared goalies on the planet, despite the numbers not even backing it up anymore. Like you have to wonder why the general manager decided that this was an important thing for him to trade their most valuable skater for. And it didn't work. At least immediately, it didn't work, right? Yes, that first season, they finished in first in their division. But what did they also do while they were in first in their division? They fired their head coach. Which is another question of leadership. It seemed like th there were two things that were constantly being talked about with the Mark Berger and Montreal Canadiens. I'll say three things. Character, because he just couldn't get enough of saying that. Leadership. And confidence. Those three words, when I hear them now, make me want to throw up. Like, because we just heard them nonstop for 10 years. And, you know, when something wasn't going right, his only, his, the only thing that Mark Bergeron had at his disposal was to get rid of it. So, you know, I don't think that, that it's Shea Weber's fault that Michelle Terry got fired. Because I think... What Mark Bergeron was saying was, Michelle, we got you the guy you wanted, and the team is still not performing. Yeah, they were in first, but they were in a tailspin. And then they hired Claude Julian. And I'd say, you know, that they brought him in for leadership because everything they told us about Shea Weber, like, hardly any of it had to do with, like, the on-ice play. Yeah, we, know, we knew he had the hardest shot in the league. We knew that. But in the marketing behind the trade that took place in the weeks and months after June, 9, June 29th, uh, 2016, Weber was talked up to be this impeachable leader and this universally respected person as opposed to a really, really good hockey player, which he was, which is why I think, you know, he was put in an unfair situation when he was traded here because he could have just been Shea Weber, this really, really good hockey player, but now he has to be so much more than that. And to his credit, I think he was. Like, you know, we talk about him as, like, team dad and how he embraced that role, despite the fact that his body was just falling apart and they were still playing it into the ground. 
that made it easy for fans to overlook his on-ice deficiencies like his lack of foot speed or his inability to drive transition from defense to offense. This is to say, Shea Weber was not a bad hockey player. He was not a bad player in Montreal. Please understand that when, when, when people are criticizing Shea Weber and the way that he played, most of the time that is because the, the, the team played him into the ground. They reduced him to rubble. You know, I don't think he was a perfect player. He wasn't called in here to be a perfect player. He was called in to be a perfect leader. And that's far less impeachable in the sense that I can't prove that he's a good leader or not. Can you? You know, the impact he leaves behind seems to indicate to me that something clicked with him and the other players in that locker room, especially as, you know, the younger players started to get there and they saw this player that they grew up watching as like one of the most feared defensemen in the NHL. And, you know, I honestly think that that's what the management team thought when they made this trade. Like, yeah, we gave up P.K. Subban, but who could disagree with this? Look at Shea Weber, right? Like, that was just, you know, the whole, it's, it felt like the, the, the Will Smith meme and not him slapping Chris Rock. Him, like, gesturing towards his wife on the red carpet. Like, it was just him, like, my version was just like, see, look at, look at this guy. He's here. It's Shea Weber is right in front of us in a Canadian's jersey. Like, that... That, to me, felt like the entire reason for making that trade was just, look at Shea Weber. But, you know, as time went on, he was very clearly in pain. Um, the Canadians insisted on playing him into the ground. And he never had a full season with Montreal, and there was always something going on with his help. The most games he played were 78, which is good. Like, that's nearly a full season. It's four games that he missed. But there were some seasons where he didn't. we didn't see Shea Weber a ton. Um... In the run to the cup final, we know now that his body was just completely falling apart. And they were they played him over 25 minutes a game. And he, that that pairing of Shea Weber and 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 Ben Sherratt is the, the pinnacle of the analytics versus eye test debate. Because they got absolutely caved in by every single team they faced. And their goalie helped them out. Yeah, they were mean in front of the net and they cross-checked Austin Matthews. But they gave up a lot. It's it. Looking back at some of those series that they played in, it's a it's a wonder they got through them. Except the Winnipeg series. Winnipeg was brutal in that in that series. But you know, those twenty five minutes a game for a normal number one defenseman who's healthy, that's you know, that's usually fine in the playoffs. It might even be a little low. But for a defenseman who has injuries so terrible that it was hard for him to get up and get dressed in the morning. It seems almost inhumane that they were putting him out there. And I, I understand there's a very complicated relationship between hockey players and injury. And I'm not going to go into any of that because Shea Weber, you know, he if he says he's ready to play, what are they going to tell him? No. Obviously, the answer to that should be yes, you should tell him that it is bad for him to play. But they didn't. Um it's a shame he can't go out on his own terms, although I wonder how much of that cup final run was him going out on his own terms. I wonder if he knew like that's all he had left because the shots after the cup final where the Lightning are celebrating and the Canadians are dejected, every player goes up to him and gives him a hug and then they all kind of surround him. I, like they all knew that that was it. Like that was their last dance. And it is fitting that it ends this summer of all summers because... You know, Subban's contract that he signed in Montreal also expires this summer. 
So it sort of feels like we get closure on on that deal, right? Like, unless they trade Shea Weber's contract again, but none of that matters because it's not Shea Weber the player that's being traded. It's the contract. It's the the the, the bureaucracy of Shea Weber. So, you know, it's it seems like everything's wrapped up here with that deal, which is I think far sooner than anyone imagined it would, just considering how long Shea Weber's contract was and how. You know, P.K. Subban, for what it's worth, has not lived up to the expectations that he had from his early career. A lot of that's due to injury. You have to remember, Subban, the last shift he played in Montreal, he left on a stretcher. You know, he had a, he has back issues. Um, so, it's it's tough. It, it's a tough um, legacy that, that, you know, they have in Montreal in the, over the last 10 years. Shea Weber was a bright spot, though. Right? Like, like... I I don't I don't think I will look back on a lot of the Bergevin era fondly. I'll remember the Cup final run fondly because it seemed like they were winning in spite of everything else. And I'll look back at Shea Weber, who I think you know everybody sort of embraced him when he showed up because it was sort of like, hey, we didn't expect you to be here. You didn't ask to be here. You're a really good hockey player. Let's go do something fun. Um. And now if you consider the trade, it's basically Dodonov for Subban, which looks brutal. So I guess the Canadians did well in the first trade. Um, if there's anything I regret about this trade, it's what it did to the fan base. Um, I don't need to go into specifics. I'll speak very generally. But, like, you can still see the impact it has on the way that, the, on the way that fans talk to one another. Um, any critique of any player that was acquired by the last general manager... Is, is a hater mentality, and it's negative. And anything that does not fit into the narrative that the team wants you to see was fake or rumors or not true. I remember, I'll, I'll do one thing specifically. I remember when Bergevin was very interested in Tony D'Angelo to the point where he was working out a way that the Rangers would buy him out and Bergevin would make him whole again, which is the words that Elliot Freeman used, you know, when he was, when he signed, but he was going to sign in Montreal after that buyout. And I remember people saying when the rumors were going around, like, oh, when Friedman says it, I'll believe it. And then I was like, here's Friedman saying it. And they're like, Friedman's full of garbage. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Like, the way that this fan base has, you know, taken in that Weber for Subban trade is, and, and, and you know, the, the effect that it's had on, like, their relationship with the media has become so incredibly toxic. And it wasn't, Yes, it, I mean, you know, fans are always cantankerous with the media to begin with, but it became, it, it came, it went to a different level after that trade where, you know, the only way I can, I can talk about it, and I know it sounds crazy, but like, you sound like the people here, and I mean here as in the States, who, who you know, who are, are shouting fake news at people. Like, you, you sound insane. You know, I think the way that this fan base after this trade, after the trade, you know, that brought Shea Weber here, the way that the fan base has treated the media has been downright disgraceful. And I think now should be a time for like people to look back on that sort of thing and and think about how they spoke to Art Pinbasu when this trade happened or Mark Dumont when this trade happened. Like it and it, that stuff continues today where the media is villainized for their narratives 
But the fans have their own narratives that are usually based in no kind of reality. There are fans out there right now who think that the Canadians are getting the second overall pick for garbage, for scraps. And they believe that it's going to happen. Like, th that's always going to happen in this in, in sport. But it's, it's incredibly frustrating to see that happen in the same breath as everything the media tells you about the Canadians is wrong. And that's what happened after this trade. And, you know, the last general manager made this trade the stamp that he wanted to put on this team. Mark Bergeron made Mark Bergeron moves the entire time he was there. Like, every trade he made, you went, ah, that makes a lot of sense for this guy. And, you know, he, I think people really liked Mark Bergeron, like, as, like, a cult of personality kind of thing. You know, the, the, the biceps, the whatever of all of it. But it became frustrating to watch people defend the trades he made, you know, just for the sake of defending it. You know, like, in the moment, this trade didn't make a ton of sense. Shea Weber was older than P.K. Subban by, I think, four years. Um, we already knew he was kind of banged up coming into Montreal. It just it didn't make sense. And, you know, team the fans wanted to believe that this was the right move. And then, you know, that sort of curtailed after that season, that sort of went into, like, every other thing that happened with the team, or, or I should say, like, whenever Shea Weber started to do something well, like, ah, see, Mark Bergevin was right, and you are wrong. That's what became of this fan base and of this team. It's like, it just, everything became a referendum on Mark Bergevin. And I'm going to be honest, that's why this podcast exists, is to document this team as it undergoes a transformation into a modern franchise and to be honest about it from, an, you know, I'm going to be as objective as I can. I love this team, but I'm going to be as objective as I can because Kent Hughes and, and Jeff Gordon are not the Montreal Canadiens and neither was Mark Bergevin. He was a general manager. And, you know, I want to see this team taken into the modern world. And I think that these guys that we have now are going to do it. And that wasn't Shea Weber's fault that the Canadians were hell-bent on playing as a team who would have won the Stanley Cup in 2003. Like, that, you have to think, like, that's not Shea Weber's fault. The Canadians thought they had a need for him. And in order to acquire him, they gave up their best skating asset. The problem was that he fit that role that the Canadians thought they desperately needed. You know the saying, like, when all you have is a hammer, all your problems look like nails? Well, the Mark Bergevin Canadians, at that point in time, all they had were nails, and they were going to do anything they could to get a hammer. So that's where I'm going to leave that. Here's their final line on Shea Weber. 275 regular season games, 58 goals, 88 assists, 146 points on the regular season. 38 playoff games, 22 this last playoff. Five goals, nine assists, 14 points. So that, that puts a bow on that, I guess. I didn't mean to get as heated as I did, but it is hot up here in this attic. I'm sweating. I'm standing and sweating, and I'm just leaking everywhere. Like, this is the drippiest podcast of all time. All right. Two more things quickly before we wrap up for the day. Um, last week, I talked about Josh Anderson and the potential of trading him. 
I think a lot of Canadians fans seem to think that he's untouchable, that we should not be dealing him. And that is absolutely hilarious. Like you, you, if someone offers you a good trade for Josh Anderson, you take it. There are two players on this team that are untouchable and he is neither of them. Those two players are Cole Caulfield and Nick Suzuki. I know people like to throw Alexander Romanov into the untouchable discussion. I don't, but you know, Josh Anderson ain't it. Pierre Lebrun says teams are calling about Josh Anderson, but they're all told that, you know, the Canyons are, they, they want to keep him. What does that sound like? That sounds like what they just did with Arturi Lekkanen, and they finessed a second-round pick out of uh, Joe Sackick. So, LeBron lists the Oilers as a team with interest, which makes sense to me, I think. I think they need better depth up front, and I think they would really love to get someone who, who you know, could have filled that, that Zach Cassian role, but with more scoring. Um, Dave Peñota of the fourth period has the Devils as a team with some interest. I, I don't think he's going to end up getting traded. At least this upcoming se- for this upcoming season. I bet he stays for now. But maybe one team thinks they're a Josh Anderson away from a Stanley Cup. And like I said earlier, when all you have are nails, you'll do anything for a hammer. You know, if they think that he's their one piece, what are you willing to give up for that thing that you think is going to make you a Stanley Cup team? It's probably going to be a lot. And to wrap up on Anderson, because there was a tweet going around today of a J Fresh card, which just drives me nuts. Because advanced metrics, people, you know, the, the, the main tweet was that uh, people look at this and, like, the Canadians think they're going to get something of value for Josh Anderson? Because, you know, there was a lot of red on that J Fresh card, which also said he was 23 years old, even though he's not. And the J Fresh card was based on 11 games. Like, it... <sighs> this isn't the argument that I'm making. The, you know, I don't think analytics apply to Josh Anderson, not to say that he's above that sort of thing, but his value is not dependent on it because the type of player that Josh Anderson is attracts a certain quality of hockey man and they don't care about analytics. You know, they're not, they're not at the same, they're not at the same parties, right? But like the Josh Anderson types are, you know, are we forgetting that the Canadians just got a first-round pick and a prospect for Ben Sherratt? Like, it, it, they can absolutely deal Josh Anderson for a King's Ransom. And they should. They should try to get that offer. If you don't get it, don't trade him. It's fine. Um, last thing. Jeff Petrie, it seems like a trade is impending for him. Um, it seems like a matter of when and not if. Plenty of suitors for him. Three years left, $6.25 million. Dave Pagnota of the fourth period was on TSN 690 on Monday. He said, I think this summer something happens here trade-wise. I don't think he'll be back next season. He added that he'd be surprised if it's not done by the draft. He names Dallas as a fit. That's always made a ton of sense to me. Um, I know his wife is from Texas, I think. Um, especially if Klingberg leaves, you know, and other teams might be in on Petrie if they miss out on Chris Letang. So if you see a Chris Letang extension over the next few days, um, that's the sort of thing that might trigger a, a, a better market for Jeff Petrie because all of a sudden one of those top right-handed D is off the market. Same thing with Klingberg. That's why Dallas would be interested. Um, and, it, you know, looking at Dallas's roster, I'd love to get my hands on Thomas Harley, but I don't think Dallas would be willing to move him. And if he is, you laugh all the way to the back. I, I have a Jeff Petrie jersey. He's my favorite player on the Canadians right now. 
I would drive Jeff Petrie to the airport if they give up Thomas Harley in a draft pick. Like, that's just, you, you just do that. That's fine. Um, so, you know, this is to say, remember at the beginning of this podcast, not this episode, the series, where I said, you know, I was going to talk, I was going to try to answer the question regularly, are the Canadians any closer to a Stanley Cup today than they were when Gorton was hired? The answer today is no, they are further away, which is fine. That's what was intended. You know, they're stripping it down. They're getting assets to try to bounce back. Um, and with that said, like, what else does, does uh, you know, Hughes and Gorton, what else do they have in the works? We already saw Weber moved. Petrie's going to get moved. You know, you're going to get some premium assets back for him. And then you start to look up and down that lineup and see potentially some guys that might not be around. What's What are his plans for Christian Dvorak? Does someone step up and offer that boatload that we talked about for Josh Anderson? Does someone offer anything of value for Mike Hoffman, who's got two years left at like four and a half million dollars? God, Mark Bergevin really just threw money at everybody last season. Um, so, you, you know, they're not done. And, you know, I'll, they're not closer to winning a Stanley Cup today. But they're in better shape to be there in a few years than they were, you know, before... Hughes and Gorton took over. And I think that's that's what this podcast is here to talk about. I'm going to continue to talk about it. Hopefully not dwell on the past as much as I did today. But, you know, such is life. That's how this goes. That's all I got this week. It's super hot in here. I have to fix the air conditioner. Um, so, you know, we've got the draft coming up. They were in the final. Um, we're in the Stanley Cup final right now. So we'll get to the draft. Um, I, I, I have some prospect knowledge just a little bit from you know learning and, and listening to everybody that learning and listening sounds like I just got canceled um just <laughs> listening to other podcasts and, and reading what scouts have to say um but I don't feel comfortable telling you who the Canadians should pick with their third round pick like I just don't I don't have the knowledge of that so the draft will be something I analyze afterwards um with a boatload of information hopefully um but until then thanks for listening you can follow me on twitter at maybe it's ian at Rabbit Habs for the blog. Um, the music you heard at the beginning of the show and are hearing right now is a track called Inside by Fred Mug. Check the description for a link to his Bandcamp page and check out the rest of his stuff. All right, guys, stay cool. I'll talk soon. See ya. Bye.